your Bibles to John chapter 16. A reminder to silence all electronic devices, please, this morning. Oh, what a great selection of hymns our brother gave us this morning. I mean, they're all wonderful, but when it grips your hearts and you can gaze upon Christ while singing, that is a precious thing indeed. The title of my sermon this morning is No Surprise. No Surprise. We could say No Surprise Is. Some of us may like surprises. Some of us absolutely hate surprises. I guess it depends on what the surprise is. We receive something nice, something comforting, or someone shows up that we want to see. We say, oh, what a nice surprise. And we say it and, and mean it. We can say it and not mean it as well. Nevertheless, then there are surprises we do not care for. We all know about those. Surprises. Like me, like me dropping my water bottle there. That's unopened, by the way. No surprise. There are surprises we do not care for. Surprised by certain news that we do not care to hear. Surprised when there is a negative reaction we did not want or expect. But as Christians, we ought not to be surprised when trials and hardships and sufferings come in our life because of following Jesus Christ. As the saying goes, it comes with the territory, does it not? Jesus warned his disciples time and time again what they were to expect and what we are to expect as well. And as the theme continues, but as we turn a corner a bit, we still see that Jesus is speaking of hardships. But it moves from being hated from the world, hated by the world because of who we are, because the world hates Jesus Christ, the world hates God the Father, and the world hates us who are Christians. No surprises. But when we go into chapter 16, we enter into a different tone in the discourse. We see instruction and admonition and comfort turn into a tone of prediction. And when Jesus predicts something, when he says something will happen, indeed, it will take place. There is no suggestions. There is no if, ands, or buts. It will happen. What will happen to you? There's a future tense tone in what we will see here. It is what is going to happen. The sending of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in this context is in the context of hard times, in the context of persecution. The Spirit of God comes in a time where Jesus' followers were, they were spent, they were tried beyond their own strength. Jesus makes it clear that to follow Him means to follow a difficult way, definitely a, a hard road. It is a 
narrow gate that we enter, and it is a narrow road that we walk on that leads to eternal life. So several points for us this morning as we consider John chapter 16. Our verses for us primarily are verse 1 through 4. Let's read that, and then I will pray once more. Jesus saying, fresh off the heels of speaking of the Holy Spirit. We'll just see verse 26 or 15. When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, says Jesus. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts in a synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Indeed, I will pray and ask for the Lord's help one more time. God, I stand behind this pulpit. Uh, Absolutely, I am nothing. I am a vessel praying to be used by you this morning. I am not a professional. I am a man seeking that you would speak through me, by your word, to the people here this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts pliable to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is that we must have, the disciples must have a firm footing in Christ. A firm footing in Christ. These things I've spoken to you, he says, so that you may be kept from stumbling. Oftentimes when we think of stumbling, we think of when someone stumbles into a specific sin. But here it takes the meaning of something a little different. So that you will not go astray, which would be sin, of course. All of these things I've told you so that for this reason, for this particular reason that you may be kept from stumbling, kept from going astray, kept from falling away. The word used here for stumbling here is uh, scandalizo in the Greek, which has the idea of being offended. Offended in such a way that one abandons the faith into apostasy, even. But we know that those who are his, who are Christ's, will never perish. John chapter 10, verse 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, says the Lord. And he also says before that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Yet on the other hand, every follower of Christ is responsible to keep his hand or her hand to the plow to persevere, to not look back. In times of difficulty, people can do things that would surprise others. Our metal is really tested. 
when faced with hostility and opposition or difficult times or decisions. Our mettle is tested. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to be tried and tested in such a way and come out of it by God's grace. Because then it shows something to you and it shows something to others of who you are. You are genuine. Rather than being tested and going astray or leaving and saying, this whole Christianity thing, that's not for me. Well, it never was for you in the first place. We need to be a people who know God, not a people who just know about God. If you came here this morning to know a little bit more about God, you have come for a somewhat of a good reason, but you must come here to know God. I want to know God in a deeper way this morning. One sermon a week, you do not know God as you should or as you could. And you will be bent up and you will be banged up when trial comes. Jesus says, I have spoken these things to you so that you would not be caught unaware or ensnared. Ensnared. Such as when a fox comes to my house and takes one of my chickens once again. And he says, all right. And then he comes back thinking everything's going to be okay. But then he comes, becomes back and he becomes ensnared. What he thought would be a delicious meal turns out to be the worst day of his miserable life. I'm making a prediction. <laughs> By the way. When the Lord says these things, here, when he says these things to his disciples, when he says these things to us, he is laying it out up front. I love the saying, putting it out on the table. Once something's out on the table, we see it, we say, okay, there it is. There it is. There's, there's nothing hidden. With following Jesus, there, it's like there's no hidden fees. There is no small print. We all know about both of those, do we not? When some shyster tries to present something to us, hidden fees and small prints, oh, I didn't read that. First off, I didn't have my reading glasses. Second off, it was at the back of the page. Didn't think about it, didn't want to read it. Everything we sign anymore, checkbox, there's like 100 pages to read small print, right? Some of you may read it. It's good for you. But there are no hidden fees when following Christ. There's nothing hidden. There is no bait and switch. No surprises. You ought to know what you're getting into. And our gospel proclamation, our evangelism, better let the person know what they are getting into, lest we present a false message. He warned his followers that they would be hated by the world. Try that when you present evangelism. 
when you evangelize. Now he informs them uh, what upcoming persecution will look like. By way of application, it behooves us to take heed as well. Not only did these disciples see the betrayal by, by Judas, right? He betrayed Jesus. He dipped out a little while before, and then they would see this before their own eyes of it coming to fruition. And not only they saw this, and then the imminent departure of Jesus, he says, I will no longer be with you. I'm going to the Father. So they had to deal with that as well. And being hated by the world... But some of the difficulties they would be going through would be described here. A verse popped in my my mind, a familiar verse as I was considering this. I just want to remind us of this. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So first, we have to have a firm footing in Christ. If we do not have a firm footing in Christ, do not expect to stand firm when the difficulties come. Expect to be tripped up. Expect the baseball cap to the knees and not get up. Secondly, forewarned by Christ. A firm footing in Christ and we are forewarned by Christ. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Two persecutions mentioned here that can represent a whole range of afflictions, really. Umbrella terms, can range, a whole range of afflictions and sufferings that early Christians would experience. That would make most churchgoers today run the other way. Experiences that would cause doubt and fear, and understandably so. I mean, these disciples have not arrived, and neither have we. So these two persecutions, first they'd be cast out of the synagogue, excommunication. We can use that term for this. That's what happened. It's different than what we see as excommunication in the the local church. Quite different, the reasons. Contrasting reasons, really. But being cast out of the synagogue and secondly being threatened with murder by those who think they are offering service to God. And being murdered by those thinking that they are offering service to God zealously saying, I am serving the one true God by killing these Christians and believing it. We have to look no further than the Apostle Paul and we'll look in a bit. But let's first look at the excommunication that they would face. Go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We covered this many moons ago. And nevertheless, we'll look at it again. Briefly, as we turn to John chapter 9, let me read something for you. Okay, so they would face this excommunication from the synagogue. 
because of their faith in him, they would face being thrown out of the Jewish synagogue. We may think, this is a good thing then, right? They don't want to be there anyway, right? They're Christians now. Well, not so fast. Excommunication then was a bit different. Richard Phillips explains for us and have a further explanation that we'll get to as well. It meant not only separation from the spiritual life of Israel, including the sacrifices, prayers, and scripture reading, but also separation from the social and even economic life of the nation. A man who was cast out of the synagogue could not get a job, and if he owned a business, would lose all of his customers. Excommunication meant being cut off. It was a dreadful punishment. Let's consider what happened in in chapter 9. We know the account. I'll read through it very quickly, not the whole chapter. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Verse 1. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made, a, made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Jesus healed the man born blind. And let's see what happened to the man. Verse 13. They, the Pharisees, they brought the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. The neighbors and such brought them to him and said, here he is. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him, again, how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man, Again, what do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him. He had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they weren't going to coddle this young man. They were were afraid that they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Indeed, they would be if they followed the same train of thought. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did, he, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you, not, do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you are entirely in sins and you are teaching us, so they put him out. Okay, summarization, put him out of the synagogue, he was done, kicked out, boom, done, on your own. Now, now excommunicated from the synagogue. This man, which is different than excommunication today, the excommunication or a legitimate church discipline should cause the one who cast out to be very, very concerned. But this man and others who, who came after him, such as in the Reformation and with the Puritans, were cast out of where they were because of their belief in Jesus Christ and his gospel, for standing for Christ, for being a man of God. So that is one thing that they face, this persecution, being cast out of the synagogue, which would be horrific for them in all of their life, in every aspect. Secondly, the threat they faced was death. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. It was not long before this would indeed take place. Go to Acts chapter 6. Let's turn there this morning. Acts chapter 6. Look at a few texts. Chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. Acts chapter 6. So it was not long before what Jesus said would take place. It was about to happen. Acts chapter 6. The, the choosing of the seven, chapter 6, verse 5. We see that. Um, let's look at verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Okay, so Stephen introduced. And verse 10 and through 12, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Why? Because he was speaking with the spirit of God and they could not comprehend it. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Did he? No, he did not. But they were conspiring that he, would, that he did such a thing. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So we see that. And in chapter 7, verse 1 through 53, we will not read that, but that is the sermon by Stephen, his response. And then chapter 7, verse 54. Look at that. After what he said to the crowd, those who did not want to hear it, he preached the word of God. He preached uh, who they were before God. And verse 54 of chapter 7, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Remember, this is fresh off the heels after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, after what Jesus said. And here we see it happening. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and covered their ears 
and rushed at him with one impulse. When they have driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know who that is. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. So we see what Jesus said taking place right there in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And then we see the other part in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. Look at that. Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Saul, his Hebrew name. Paul, his Greek name. Saul did not become Paul automatically when he got converted. That didn't say, well, now your name has changed. No, that was his Greek name. You would not want to be known by Saul either. If, you, if Saul did what Saul did, you'd want to be known by Paul, especially ministering among the Greeks. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Here he is, Saul. Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Here, hearty agreement with putting him to death. Let's kill Christians. It's offering service to God, he was saying. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And then, chapter 8, verse 4 through following, we won't I'll read a few verses here. Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. What is happening here? We see persecution happening here, and we see the start of a revival. We see the church of God being persecuted, the people of God being persecuted, but what did they do? They scattered about and went preaching the word. They didn't sit at home and hunker down. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. And so on. You can read that. And then Saul, as we know, as we're familiar with, in chapter 9, verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was speaking to Saul. Saul was persecuting Christians. Jesus was saying, you're persecuting them. You are persecuting me. Damascus Road. Saul gets converted to Christ. And he has something to say about this in Acts 26. Verse 9. We'll just start there. So then, this is uh, Paul before Agrippa. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
Saul was doing this all in what he thought zealously for the one true God. He thought he was serving God in this. So Jesus, when he says this in the Gospel of John to the disciples, he also points forward to the times after that when people's values would be so messed up that when one kills followers of him, they will think that they are serving God. A theologian by the name of Pilcher reminds us that a sermon was preached at the burning of Archbishop Cranmar, and the horrors of the Inquisition were carried out with a perfectly good conscience. Religious people thinking that this was in line with serving God, serving the will of God. And you know, religious people who do not know Christ can be the most oppressive and exercise the most opposition to those who generally know Christ? I could give you example after example after example. But just to summarize a bit, the fierce hatred that the hostile Jewish leaders had towards Christ and his disciples would manifest itself in them being expelled from the synagogue, Again, this meant that those who followed Jesus would be cut off from the religious and social life of Israel. They would be seen by former friends as worse than pagans. And as Hendrickson says, they would lose their jobs, be exiled by their families, and would even lose the privilege of an honorable burial. Also, they would be killed. They would not be able to buy and sell as they once did. So it's foundational for us to have a firm footing in Christ. The disciples and we likewise are forewarned by Christ. Thirdly, they do these things because they are foreign to Christ. Foreign to Christ. Or we could say Christ is foreign to them. But I start everything with the letter F this morning, so I'm going to say foreign to Christ. These things they will do, says Jesus, because, because, for this reason, this is why they have not known the Father or me. They will do these things, will do these things. This indicates certainty, as we just read in the book of Acts, that these things indeed did happen with certainty. Jesus is not saying these things could happen. He's saying these things would be done to them. It was inevitable. It was just a matter of when. They would suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ by those who claimed to know God. Reason, he says right here, very simple for us to understand. They have not known the Father or me. They are lost. They do not know Jesus Christ. They can claim whatever they want to claim. They can be as religious as they want to do, as they want to be. But they do not know God. They know that God exists. All men know God exists. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. They think that they are serving God, yet they are not. And they do not know God. God has revealed himself, but they have not considered that. These religious folks who persecute Christians are indeed lost 
religious folks. They are foreign to Christ. Fourthly, forearming from Christ, or being forearmed. What does forearm mean? Giving you, getting your arms first. You, you're forewarned, now I'm going to equip you. Now I'm going to give you what you need. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. It was not necessary to say these things before because Christ was with them. He was with them. He was walking with them. He was there in the flesh, day in, day out, guiding them, directing them. Now he was not going to be there. All hostility once Jesus went to the cross, died on that cross for lost sinners. And when he rose from the dead and ascended on high, when he was gone, the focus then would not be on Jesus himself because he was no longer there in the flesh. It would be on those who follow him. That's where the focus would shift with much hostility. When the trials come, they wouldn't be surprised. Why? Because they lived for Jesus, they lived with Jesus, they walked with Jesus. Jesus was all they had, and they realized that. Do we realize that? Listening to a song on the way here, I choose to live my life for things above. Is that what we are doing? Are we playing games in our Christianity? Are we prepared? Are we preparing ourselves for hard times, for trials to come? We've all been through hard times, hard trials. But are we really preparing ourselves? Men, are you surrounding yourself with godly men or little boys who think they are men? Men of God is what you need, men. You need men of prayer in your lives. You don't need foolish men thinking they are men, but act like little boys all the time. Women, you need serious women of God in your lives. Not nosy Nellies and gossips. You need women who will be on their face before God with you. And not want to talk about everything that's going on in the church or this or that or someone else's life. If that's you, repent now. Get serious about Christ. Men, get with other men and get on your faces before God. Quit playing these silly little games. Forearming from Christ. They would not be surprised. And instead of trials coming and weakening their faith, this would strengthen their faith. faith. And their faith. It would test their mettle. And yes, they'd be crooked when they came out of it. The disciples would not be able to respond with shock and consider it strange and unexpected when trials come. Nor should we. 
Peter said later on, uh, something about uh, trials. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Why is it not strange? We ought not to count it as strange because Jesus said it's going to happen. This is part of the walk. When the trials would come, when suffering for Christ hits, it would confirm their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say something else. Evangelism 101 is coming. I said it was in August. We're still in August. So it's still time. When I go do evangelism, I'm interested in evangelizing with men and women of God who are serious about evangelism. Who are serious about the local church because they're serious about Jesus Christ. Not out there for games. When you do evangelism... You want to be around people who are like-minded in that way. I use, the, I use the acronym or whatever you want to call it, FAT. I hang out with fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. I was with a young man the other day, evangelizing. He was evangelizing. He wanted feedback once again. I said, praise God, here's a man out there proclaiming the gospel who wants feedback from someone else who's old enough probably to be his father. Instead of going out there in a cockiness spirit, in a fleshly spirit, and saying, I have arrived. I've told this man, once you think you have arrived, you need to shut your mouth. Because you haven't. There's a focus, a specificity, a dramatic nature of what Jesus is saying here as he says, their hour is coming. Their hour. It's in, let me read this, make sure I'm not misquoting it. Forgive me. These things I have spoken to you so that, for this reason, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, of these things. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Their hour. There's a specific dramatic focus to this. We, we know that Jesus often spoke of his hour, which indeed was rapidly approaching at this point. While their hour was... Their hour was when his enemies would come for them. Their hour is coming, he says. What is their hour? That's the hour that the enemies of Christ would come for them. It could be, perhaps, brothers and sisters, that their hour could be as well for the enemies of Christ to come for you and I. Again, time was coming for these disciples where putting them to death would be celebrated and it would be viewed as worshiping God by those who do not even know the one true God. Revelation chapter 12 gives a good 
illustration of this, I think. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 4, 13 and 17. And then I have a quote for us from J.C. Ryle before we go to communion. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. His tail swept away the third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. The dragon, the evil one, seeks to devour the child. Then the dragon seeks to devour the woman. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So we see that. And then in verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, angry with the woman. He went off and he made war against her children. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went off to make war with the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So in other words, by way of parallel here, the dragon, the evil one, went for Christ. The dragon here was enraged with the woman and then went off to, make, to go after her children, just as the evil one comes after the children of God. Who? Who, though? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me read this for us from J.C. Ryle. Well did our Lord know that nothing is so dangerous to our comfort as to indulge false expectations. He therefore prepared his disciples for what they must expect to meet in his service. Forewarned, forearmed, they must not look for a smooth course and a peaceful journey. They must make up their minds to battles, conflicts, wounds, opposition, persecution, and perhaps even death. Like a wise general, he did not conceal from his soldiers the nature of the campaign they were beginning. He told them all that was before them in faithfulness and love that when the time of trial came, they might remember his words and not be disappointed and offended. He wisely forewarned them that the cross was the way to the crown. To count the cost is one of the first duties that ought to be pressed on Christians in every age. It is no kindness to young beginners to paint the service of Christ in false colors and to keep back from them the old truth. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. By prophesying smooth things and crying peace, we may easily fill the ranks of Christ's army with professing soldiers. But they are just the soldiers who, like the stony ground hearers, in time of tribulation will fall away and turn back in a day of battle. No Christian is in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. He that expects to cross the troubled waters of this world and to reach heaven with wind and tides always in his favor, knows nothing yet as he ought to know. 
We never can tell what is before us in life. But one thing we may be very sure, we must carry the cross if we would wear the crown. Let us grasp this principle firmly and shall never forget it. Then when the hour of trial comes, we shall not be offended. Let us pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, you've reminded us this morning that we must have a firm footing in Christ. We must be in Christ. And God, perhaps there are some here this morning who are not in Christ. They have never bowed the knee to Jesus, never repented of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, that you would move upon their hearts their very souls at this moment, at this time, O oh God. And they would, they would see their need for the Savior and you would save their lost soul. God, we find from your word we have been forewarned by Christ, forewarned of difficulties, forewarned of trials and persecutions. But we are in Christ and you protect us, never leave us nor forsake us. You have forearmed us. You have equipped us with the Holy Spirit of God that we are to stand firm by His strength, not our own. And Lord, as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, that our hearts would be fixated upon the things of You and would be right before You. In Jesus' name, Amen.